Today's scripture reading is from Luke 19, 28 through 40. Please read the highlighted verses with me. And when he had said these things, he went ahead, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near the Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent the two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their colts on the colt and yet on it. And as he rode along, he spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawn near, already on the way down from the Mount Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Pastor Brad, and I'm grateful that you could be with us. Um, if you have received a welcome, I hope that is true, uh, but I'll add mine to it and, uh, and welcome you to, to Passion Week, this week that we have been anticipating and uh, preparing to celebrate as we've walked through Lent um, towards the celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. Uh, the Carpenter family, that's my family, uh, we make uh, a pilgrimage every year, um, sometimes two, but at least one time a year we make a pilgrimage to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. My parents have owned uh, a cabin in the Upper Peninsula for 25 years or something like that. And uh, most summers, but, all, but every, every New Year's Eve, myself and my brothers and our kids, we all make the, the trek um, up to the Upper Peninsula. It's, uh, it's six hours driving from anywhere. And after you've flown on a plane from California and whatnot, and there are certain traditions that go along that uh, one has to do each time you make the pilgrimage to the Upper Peninsula. There are certain uh, uh, songs that you have to sing, certain places that you have to stop, certain food that you have to eat as part of the pilgrimage. Uh, little rituals that we do every time that uh, partly say 
uh, as we do it, hey, this is what we always do. And partly are about looking forward to uh, we're on our way and we're almost to the cabin. It's uh, anticipation at arriving at long last. And so as you're driving through Wisconsin, you have to stop at Culver's, which is like the in and out of Wisconsin. And you have to eat a butter burger and deep fried cheese curds. <laughs> and uh, you have to, as you, yes. <laughs> they squeak in your mouth when you eat them. <laughs> and as you drive over the bridge from Wisconsin into Michigan, you have to put your hand over your heart as you drive into Michigan and mutter something like good riddance about leaving Wisconsin. <laughs> And there's a certain place along the stretch as you approach the cabin where you have to, it's a, where you have to start singing 100 bottles of beer on the wall. So it takes about 100 bottles of beer to get to the cabin from that point. And about a quarter mile from the cabin, there's a stop sign where the van pulls over and all of the kids pile out and run the rest of the way to the cabin. Uh, Jewish families in Jesus' day would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, a yearly pilgrimage at least. There was, three, there was three feasts, and if you could afford it and you had the time, then you would uh, make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks, and then you would do it again for the Feast of Booths, but everybody came to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was the celebration of when, uh, the God, when God had saved they're, they're Hebrew ancestors from slavery in, in Egypt. And there were certain traditions that Jewish families would participate in every year as they came on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Certain songs that you had to sing, certain foods that you had to eat. There were rituals that they would do, and those were rituals that were looking back. They'd say, this is what we do every year. And it was giving thanks that God had saved us in the past but by the time Jesus had arrived and lived in Palestine, those same rituals had taken on a, a kind of significant amount of anticipation about a coming day when God would arrive again in Jerusalem and save Israel from oppression, from Roman rule. Uh, a day when they would once again have a king on David's throne to rule them. And so as your family would make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you would you would do these certain things. In fact, there's a whole genre of psalms in the book of Psalms that were written for singing on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They're called the Songs of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, they're psalms like Psalm 118. I don't know if you noticed, but everything that we did in the liturgy today was, was from Psalm 118, the, the call to worship, uh, the confession of sin. The, psalm 118 was a song that you would sing on your way up to, ascending to Jerusalem, and you would sing things like, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And when you were singing that, you'd be remembering uh, and anticipating that as you arrived in Jerusalem, people that you knew and loved, friends and family, would come out and welcome you and say, blessed are you because you've come in the name of the Lord. But you'd also be singing that song and anticipating that uh, one day, someone was coming, a Messiah was coming in the name of the Lord to, to save like God had saved the Hebrews from 
slavery at Passover so long ago. And you would eat the same meal every year. There's a, there's a certain food that you're supposed to eat. You would eat a Passover lamb, which was a sacrificial lamb, like the same lamb whose blood had marked the door frames of Hebrew houses, and those were the houses uh, that were saved. And at that meal, you would, uh, you would do certain rituals to remind you of God's saving grace and look forward to his coming grace. And each year at the meal, you would say, as you departed, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem. And when you said that, you'd be anticipating and say, I'll see you next year when we come again and, bring and come on pilgrimage. But you'd also be saying, maybe next year. In Jerusalem, salvation will come again. Maybe next year when we're here, God will arrive and a king will sit on his throne again. And so this is the festival that all of Israel was gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate at the moment that Jesus arrived in what we call the triumphal entry or what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Uh, which we're celebrating today as the, the beginning of the end of Lent, the beginning of Passion Week. We've been preparing for this for the last five weeks in anticipation. We've been looking ahead to this week, which is the culmination of Jesus's mission on earth, his arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover to be betrayed to be crucified and die on our behalf as a sacrificial lamb. And so uh, we've been anticipating this week, and we're going to walk this, this week, this, this difficult part of our Savior's path together. Um, and we're going to do that for a couple of reasons. We're going to do that because this is what we always do. And it's our tradition, and it's our ritual. There's certain things that you do every time that you come to this part of the year, and we do it to commemorate and look back and say, Jesus really did this. He really died for us. He really sacrificed himself. Our forgiveness and our salvation is real. And we do it because we're doing it to look forward in anticipation of celebrating not just his defeat of death on the resurrection next Sunday, but to say to one another this year, as we do every year, maybe next year. Maybe next year our king will come again and wipe every tear from every eye. Maybe next year we won't be praying for churches where babies have been killed. And so in some ways, preaching on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is something that we always do because it's what we always do. And in some ways, uh, to do, we, we do this so that we can think about what Jesus has done in new ways and anticipate his return anew. And so to do this this morning, I just want to look at this passage that we read together, and I want to point out three things in the text. I'm going to point out two almost nevers and one the same as always in the story of Jesus's triumphal entry. And so let's look at the gospel of Luke chapter 19 and his description of the triumphal entry. And we'll see, first of all, uh, I want to point out that Jesus does something that he almost never does. Jesus almost never asks for stuff. Stuff. But in Luke 19, he asks for something. He asks for a donkey to ride. It's just strange. 
Jesus has almost no possessions of his own, is what we understand. Uh, sandals on his feet, clothes on his back, maybe. Um, we think of him as an itinerant preacher, but the Gospel of Matthew says that he was homeless. It says that he had no place to lay his head. Uh, when Daniel preached a few weeks ago about, uh, from Luke chapter 20, he was talking about when Jesus was asked about uh, taxes for Caesar and what you do. And if you remember, Jesus had to ask somebody for a coin because he didn't ha even have any change in his pocket. He didn't have any money of his own. And so while there's a few occasions where Jesus might ask for some loaves and some fish to like help somebody else eat, um, the Gospels hardly ever tell us of him claiming any kind of property for himself. The whole purpose of his ministry, we're told in the book of Philippians, is that everything was his, and yet he laid aside all of his authority and poured himself out, made himself nothing uh, to be a servant in our salvation. But in Luke 19, he wants a donkey. In Luke 19, he's very specific about something that he wants and exactly how he intends to get it. He says to some followers, go to the village in front of you, and when you're entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. Is Jesus now, just now, tired of walking? After 20 chapters in Luke, suddenly he's like, you know what, we should, I should get a ride. Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think uh, Jesus needed a donkey for transportation. In fact, Jesus is not uh, getting a donkey for transportation. He's getting a donkey for communication. He's orchestrating an entrance into the Passover feast that will make an undeniable claim about who he says that he is. In Luke 19, Jesus has just finished telling a parable about a, a king who has gone off to claim a kingdom. And then verse 28, which we started today with, says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He immediately after telling a story about a king going to claim a kingdom, intentionally embodies the character he's just described, a king described in the prophets, like the, the, the place that we read earlier in uh, Zechariah, where it says that, uh, the, the, the prophet said that a king would come to Jerusalem on the Passover and claim his kingdom. Zechariah says, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus almost never asks for stuff. But when he does, it's part of an episode in which he is trying to be most intentional and most transparent about who he is and what he's trying to say. When, he's, when he intentionally rides a, a, a colt, he's intentionally saying, I am the Messiah. Some people, there's some struggle with this passage. People try to figure this out. Is this a magic trick? Jesus said, say these words. You know, uh, Some people wonder if Jesus hadn't already arranged. He'd called ahead and reserved a donkey, you know, and these guys were just going to pick it up like you'd do a Craigslist deal in a Walmart parking lot. And he says, you know, when they ask you why you're untying it, the, the, the password is the Lord has need of it. And then they'll know you're, you know, the person that has the reservation. Uh, maybe, 
maybe that's true, although I'm not sure that there was like any kind of donkey Uber in <laughs> Jerusalem. But others suggest that there might be a bigger claim happening, uh, that Jesus is actually making another bigger claim. He says, uh, tell them the Lord has need of it. Um, and the suggestion is that he's making a, a claim even uh, much bigger, one similar to the claim that God makes in Psalm uh, 50, uh, verse 10, when he says uh, that he, he owns all of the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, go get my donkey, <laughs> right? I got one, go get it. Because I'm king of creation. And this is my donkey, I made it, I can use it if I want to. Um, he says, the Lord has need of it in the people. I give it to him. This is, this is consistent, actually, with the rest of the story. Later on, when the uh, Pharisees confront him for letting people worship him, he says, uh, that he says, look, I tell you, if these were silent, even the stones will cry out. I'm Lord of creation. And so, by doing something he almost never does, Jesus claims to be the coming king of the Jews and the king of creation. But he's also making a startling statement about what kind of king he is. Um, while many probably, while many recognized the prophecy that foretold a king coming on a donkey, um, I think in the excitement about prophecy fulfillment, sometimes uh, we miss the point of a king who's not riding on a mighty steed, but on a borrowed pack animal. Jesus was not coming to conquer by force, but to save by suffering. He did not come to take control of a government or overthrow by military might. No, Jesus was a new kind of king. He'd come in meekness and gentleness to be a Messiah, a king of peace. And if people accepted him, then he would receive their praise, which we'll see in a minute. But if they reject him, he doesn't defend himself. In fact, he carries the burden of that rejection and the burden of their sin and our sin, even to the point of his own death. A second almost never in our passage today. The Bible almost never allows a person to be worshipped. In the book of Daniel, um, his friends would rather be thrown into a fiery furnace than worship a human king. The Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, tears his clothes and cries out when people uh, witness a miracle and try to worship him as a god. Even the angels in the book of Revelation reject worship. When the Apostle John encounters their glory and he tries to fall down and worship, they say, look, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Worship God. But Jesus receives the worship of his followers here in the triumphal entry. And he receives the worship of a throng of people that join his disciples in worshiping him. Two weeks ago, um, before the worship service, a group of us gathered in this room for a, a workshop, a Lenten workshop called Loving God with Your Money. And as part of what we did, we explored how we communicate our priorities with our money and with our possessions. What we spend our money on is important to us. And what we're unwilling to share has, uh, says a lot about the priority of our hearts, what our hearts worship. And so with that in mind, you, you might re you start to realize that uh, the very first worshipers mentioned in the story are unnamed owners of a donkey, 
who heard Jesus, the Lord, had need of it and said, okay, take my stuff. It's yours anyway. This might have been risky. Maybe someone comes asking questions later, right? Uh, you were, you're known to be aiding and abetting someone who's a seditious traitor to Rome. You gave him a ride. Uh, but no doubt this is a sign of someone putting their money, as it were, where their mouth is. And we're invited to worship that way. Are we willing to let the king stake his claim on what we own and uh, realize that it's really his anyway? There's a lot of other kind of worship in this story. Um, worship that Jesus receives and he encourages as well. Worship that might seem weird to you at first until you think about it and then it kind of makes sense. It says that, that his disciples brought uh, the, the donkey to Jesus and threw their cloaks on the colt and set Jesus on it. A king wouldn't ride bareback. And so they make him a saddle out of their own cloaks. Um, and if you've ever seen a donkey, you know they're not very big. So Jesus probably didn't need a lift. He, didn't, he probably could have climbed on this thing real easy. In fact, he might have had to lift his legs to ride it, right? Because it's so little. But it says that uh, the disciples lifted him onto it. They wanted, to, they wanted Jesus to receive the honor that he alone deserves. And so like athletes who lift their coach in a victory, they pick him up and they put him on the donkey. And every week when we come into this place, we're, we're called into worship and invited to lift up the name of Jesus. That's probably, uh, when we think of worship, the most familiar idea that we see in this passage. But think about some of these other things. Have you ever thought about how weird it is that movie stars walk on carpet outside, right? It's like they're too fancy or important to walk on the sidewalk like the rest of us, right? That's essentially the statement that the people are making um, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, as they rush to lay down their coats on the road. And as in other uh, gospels, it says that people put down palm branches. They're saying, look, Jesus is too worthy. He's too important, too wonderful to ride on a regular road like the rest of us donkey riders. And so throngs of people recognize the statement that Jesus is making and the worship that his disciples are giving him. And they essentially lay down a red carpet for two miles from Bethpage all the way into Jerusalem. And as we think about worship, the question is, are we willing to lay, or what are we willing to lay down? Uh, what you're willing to lay down says a lot about what you worship as well. Last week, a group of folks stayed in the room for a Lenten workshop, and we talked about living with less so uh, that others might have enough. We talked about the, the connection between laying down or, or setting aside sometimes good things that God has given us in a way of making more for others or loving God and loving our neighbors. It's worship. The red carpet treatment actually was a standard procedure in the ancient world for welcoming a victorious king. Um, a, a king who had just conquered in battle would ride victoriously into the town, claiming his kingdom. And, it, and so these people are saying, uh, King Jesus, you are so great. Um, we would follow you anywhere. In fact, it would be an honor if you would let your donkey walk on my coat and do whatever else donkeys do on roads. This is Passover in Jerusalem. And historians tell us that Passover in Jerusalem swelled to something like 2 million worshipers. 
Two million people pressurized with a maybe this year in Jerusalem sort of vibe. So you can imagine the scene when people heard that a king was coming and that the news supercharged the crowd. It was like lightning. And pretty soon people are singing out the song that they had always sang at this time of year, right? Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, except Luke says that they changed the words a little bit and they said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus does something here that the Bible almost never allows, which is a human receives worship. But I promised there would be two almost nevers and one same as always in this story. As we've seen that Jesus almost never asks for stuff, but he does today. The Bible almost never allows a person to be worshipped, but Jesus is exalted today. Uh, But there are a few people in the crowd who react the same way they always do. It says that some of the Pharisees were there, and they were the same as always. One of the things that the girl cousins, typically the girl cousins, uh, always do when we gather at the cabin is that they write and rehearse and perform a play for the family. They spend a lot of hours up in the loft rehearsing, endless trips down to various other parts of the cabin to gather supplies for costumes and props and whatnot. Um, And sometimes they recruit one of the boy cousins or an uncle to be the villain of the play, right? Uh, Or something like that. And and in in a play like this, a villain needs no explanation. You just need a bad guy, right? And sometimes I think that uh, we read the gospel that way. You know, as soon as you hear the word Pharisee, you know those are the bad guys. And, uh, you know, they're Jesus' enemies. And I I just want to say at this point in this passage that I'm not sure that that's actually fair. Uh, For once, I want to say that the the Pharisees weren't wrong. I think they got the message that Jesus was sending. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Message received. They knew that the scripture forbade worship of any person, anything in in all creation, actually. And they watched as Jesus received adoration and praise. They understood the message he was sending when he chose a donkey to ride in. Um, They witnessed uh, Jesus being praised with scriptures that were reserved for God alone. And as they listened, uh, they, they heard people apply Psalm 118 and other psalms of ascent about God's saving power to Jesus. And at the end of the passage that we read today, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. What they're saying is, unless you are really God, this is blasphemy. And so it is that the Pharisees are doing the same thing that they always do. And in doing the same thing that they always do, they actually capture the crisis of Palm Sunday. No one can rightly understand Jesus' intended message on Palm Sunday and not choose one of these two sides. There are certainly schools of thought that want to say, you know, Jesus was a good guy, he was a good teacher, 
Pharisees and the Jewish leaders went too far in killing him, but he never really claimed to be God. But that is not a view that can be sustained after reading this passage. There are no neutral bystanders on Palm Sunday. Jesus did not intend to leave us that option. If Jesus is not God and King, then the Pharisees are not villains. They're right. And Jesus should be categorized with every other religious nut job who has come along and removed from influence, and he should be lost in the pages of history. If Jesus is who he is clearly claiming to be, then you and I were made to worship him. Everything we have, everything we are is his. He can have it if he wants it. It has been given to us for his glory. Everything he did in the days to follow this day was for us. Everything he does in the days between Palm Sunday and Easter, his sacrifice, his death, he did as a new Passover and to offer himself as a Passover lamb to save us and to ransom us for God.